You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I know you're waiting for our tagline, 40 years or of. It's coming, along with a real special timely talk about International Holocaust Remembrance Day. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card, and you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, headquartered in beautiful Newark, New Jersey, with offices worldwide, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. Those thorny credit card transaction fees are actually built into the customer's bill. And if they pay with cash, they get a discount. This means you as a retailer can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay Fee Buster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term locked-in contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. No hidden fees, no unpleasant surprises. I'm personally familiar with this company. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. They want to help independent business owners out there not only survive, but thrive. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. That's nrspay.com and that number again, 833-289-2767. And now... 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruven Yoshua Popko, Coach St. Luke's favorite rabbi at Beth Israel, Beth Aaron. You, you, you mentioned to me right before we started recording that tomorrow is International Holocaust Day, um, which I guess international is really the key because here in the U.S., especially in, uh, let's say, in, in the Jewish school system, uh, they're very familiar, of course, with Yom HaShoah. They're much less familiar with the uh, Yom Kaddish Kloli of Asura Batavis, which um, is sort of like fallen on the wayside. Uh, National Holocaust Memorial Day uh, is gaining more prominence in North America, I've noticed of late, but it's uh, it was always pretty prominent in Europe. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, uh, you know, when what day of the year should be uh, International Holocaust Memorial Day? When should we do it? Um, and um uh and the the um so the, the jewish uh, the jewish community generally observes yom hashoah uh, certainly the non-orthodox and even in the modern orthodox community yom hashoah is certainly central uh the haredi community i don't believe observes yom hashoah for a variety of reasons but um and and, you know, and, and before you snap at me for interrupting you rudely um, what I, just for people who don't realize, the Yom HaShoah that is usually uh, right after Pesach, of course, is uh, 
was meant to be Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura, right. which was supposed to memorialize the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Well, which... I, would say, I, would, I would put it a little differently, but you're right. I mean, fundamentally, you're correct, but I would put it a little differently. In other words, when the debate was raging in Israel in the early 50s about what day uh, should Holocaust Memorial Day be observed on, the reason they, they, they chose Yom HaShoah in April in the month of Nisan is to associate Holocaust memory with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. In other words, the egregious mistake they made at the time, it was an egregious mistake. And again, I'm not in favor of changing Yom HaShoah. I mean, it is what it is, and I think it should be observed. But the egregious mistake they made was that um, they believed that Jews had gone like sheep to slaughter, and therefore the the Jews who died were not a source of pride, but a source of shame. So they, they, they wanted to focus on the Jews of whom they could be proud. And those were the Jews who fought back in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Right, which now, is, now, again, that is not the thinking anymore, nor has it been for a long time. Right. Israel. I would say probably since the Eichmann trial, right, things, right. Started, to, things exactly. started to move away but from that. At the that. time, you know, uh, Abba Kovner in the, in the Vilna Ghetto had said, let us not go like sheep to slaughter. And uh, it was uh, a phrase that was uh, misappropriated and used as... We know the uprising began on the first day of Pesach in Warsaw because right. that was very symbolically important uh, for Nebuch, the Kedoshim that were there, the idea of Cherus, and we're going to fight on that day. Uh, and that couldn't be done because you couldn't have a Holocaust day on the first day of Pesach. So then the question was, right, perhaps, the, 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 perhaps the, the English... I think they took the English date of that year... A 44 it is that it was called as you said and that's very important to remember originally called and maybe even still legally called Yom HaShoah V'Hagvura uh, although that the, the Vura part dropped off because of this again the, the evolving understanding and appreciation for what really happened in the Holocaust and the fact that the Warsaw Uprising was not a, an anomaly at all it was the rule Jews resisted, but I want to make make it clear of my views here. Had there been no Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, had there been no uprisings or revolts or rebellion or resistance anywhere, that shouldn't change how we think of the, you know, of the victims and the survivors. The fact is, there was widespread resistance, and it's important to acknowledge that it okay. happened because it happens to be the truth of the of of, of history. There was uprisings in I mean, there are there are uprisings in Krakow ghetto. There was an uprising in Treblinka, uprising in Sobibor. Uh, you know, and and the and, and the spiritual resistance. And what I'm and I use that term to mean several different phenomena. The spiritual resistance was ubiquitous. Yeah. So I think we understand uh, why that the Warsaw ghetto because of the size of the revolt and the amount of Jews that were involved, and because of how long it lasted, that's the reason why it took center stage. And that's also the reason why it was uh, it, it captured the public's imagination. Uh, John Hersey, a non-Jewish writer, uh, wrote a whole book about the wall, in, which dealt with the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. So it was obviously something that was uh, in everyone's mind. Rod Serling did a similar treatment of it uh, at the end of the 1950s and 1960, actually. So there's been a lot of fascination with it. And you're right. Uh, it was tied into a, a, a the dub, other side of that coin was a sort of embarrassment of when there wasn't an uprising and a, an unwillingness to look at what was really going on. So what is the rationale behind uh, this date? 
Um, this date it marks the liberation by the Red Army of Auschwitz in January 27, 1945. Listen, had you and I sat down, right, in 1950 to figure out when there should not that either of us were alive. But if we had to choose a date, what date would you have chosen? I know what I would have chosen. All right, I would have chosen either September 1st, whatever that turned out to be in the Jewish calendar in 1939, when the Nazis invade Poland, the beginning of uh, of the Holocaust, or I would have chosen Tisha B'Av. Yeah, as Rav Hutner and others have written uh, in the 70s about this thing, I think yeah, that was the official Aguda party line when they were challenged as to why uh, there has not been uh, an official Holocaust Day. Rav Hutner wrote uh, famously in the Jewish Observer, that it's important to see the Hurban of Europe as part of all the Hurbonis, and that would be the, the best way. And, we, and we've talked on Tisha Again, the other Haredi position was based on a lie. Um, listen, we all remember Kinos on Tisha B'av, where it talks about the Crusades, you know, and it says the tragedy of these communities, Vermaizim, against the right, was so profound that it should have had a different day a separate day on the calendar, but alas, wrote the author of the Kina, uh, we don't add days to the Jewish calendar. And when Yom HaShoah was discussed, there were great gedolim, who are household names, who said, because of that, we can't have a separate date. But that's based on a lie. It's based on a lie because if you look at the back of every old sitter, there are slichas for the first for the Chamanitsky pogroms. They did add days. So the idea that you don't add, and I believe that the re- reluctance of the Haredi community to have a separate Yom HaShoah, although I understand Rabbi Hunter's point, Rabbi Hunter's point is compelling. It really is compelling. Uh, the, the, the view of others that we don't add new dates is a lie. We do add new dates. Um, but uh, I believe their reluctance to add a new date meant they were sanctifying 20th century Jewish history, which would have put them, you know, uh, up against the uh, the question about of, of the establishment of the state of Israel, so I, I think they they just didn't want any new dates based on events in those decades. Because yeah, look, there was definitely a fear that uh, any sort of alteration, insertion, and you see that in terms of the Nachem Tefillah on Tisha B'av and other things, because every every halachic suggestion, unfortunately, is backed in many people's minds by an agenda to perhaps create a different type of Yiddishkeit. So this orthodoxy in the last 200 years at times, not generally, but at times have been reactionary. In other words, the idea that Kitnios is Chomets Mamish is only reactionary to the reform wanting to permit it, right? There was, people were much more lenient about, you know, make Kitnios and other things before the reform wanted to liberalize. So I mean that's the reality. It is sometimes reactionary. Yeah, yeah, and, and but it does sometimes provide fodder for people like us who are standing on the sidelines uh, to be able to analyze and pick it apart. Let's talk about the the, uh, the liberation of Auschwitz by the Red Army, um, and and obvi- it, it, clearly we have a sort of an uneasy alliance here with Russia throughout that time. You say it's 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 observed in Europe. How is it observed in Europe or in Canada at all, this international day? Canada is very very similar to the U.S. For instance, Doug Emhoff, what's he called, the second gentleman or whatever he's called, is is the official leader of the American delegation to ceremonies in Europe. President Herzog of Israel uh, is addressing the European Parliament 
uh, on this day. It's observed in municipalities and communities throughout Europe. It is, uh, as is Yom HaShoah in, in a more parochial way in the Jewish world. It, it ha- and it's, it's recognized in the UN. It's, an, it's, it's, it's a day that and, does have prominence. And, and, and I would assume part of the reason why uh, people can embrace it without seeing any sort of agenda is because, oh, it's about freeing people, it's about coming together, it's about recognizing the oh, horror it's, it's of man's, man's inhumanity to man. Here's the Russians uh, seeing these skeletal bodies and, and knowing the truth that the Holocaust occurred. No, but again, all- it makes sense. It, there is a logic behind this date. In other words, it's the, liber- the, 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 the liberation of the largest killing center. Okay, it marks the, the end of, of the Holocaust. Not exactly, because some murders continued elsewhere, but it marks you know uh, the, the end of the largest killing center. But and in some ways, it's a more compelling argument for January 27th than there is for you know, Yom HaShoah in the month of Nisan. Which you know simply was almost you know we're just linked to, to one act of rebellion in, in dating. But uh, again, I want to get back. I want to get back to Rabbi Hutner's point. Rabbi Hutner's point is very compelling because you know if you were if you were asked to speak about the Holocaust, right? You had an hour to talk to a group of Catholic school students who are in twelfth grade about to graduate high school, and you had one hour to talk about the Holocaust. Right. What would you talk about? And where would you begin? In other words, would you begin on September 1st, 1939? Would you begin on November 9th, 1938, Kristallnacht? Would you begin 1933 when Hitler comes to power? Would you begin with the German defeat in World War I, which conjures up in the minds of the haters the idea that Jews had stabbed Germany in the back? Or do you go back to the Canterbury Tales to talk about the blood libel? And Rabbi Hutner's point is very compelling. You've got to go back really far because as, as distinct and unique as the Holocaust was, it was part of a continuum of hatred. It was. And, and to put it on, on uh, its own distinct day might lead one to think it's like this unique anomaly. You've got, to, you've got to study only Hitler and the Germans. No, you have to study what the church did for a, for a millennia before that you know, you know, uh, uh, disseminating vicious anti-Semitism. You have to talk about the Crusades, the Inquisition, the Khomeinsky pogroms and all the Easter pogroms and all the blood libels and all the times, because that's what created the fertile ground for the Nazis. And that's why they had collaborators wherever they went. So it's uh, so it's, it's so Rabbi Underhand makes a very compelling point. Yeah, I would say also the other factor here is that in the 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s, when we still had survivors and people who were intimately connected either in a first-person way to the events from 1939 to 1945, um, there was a different type of mentality that needed to uh, be observed as different type of, um, I, I would say, awareness and sensitivity. And therefore, for example, let's talk about uh, what I mentioned in passing, uh, the Yom Kaddish Kloli, that was the Rabbanut's idea. I mean, you and I all... are the only two people left in the world who even remember that day exists. Uh, okay, but let's talk about it again. <laughs> right, Asar Batevis being the Yom Kaddish Kloli, because right. there were so many people who had escaped, who had made their way to Eretz Yisrael, and were mourning uh, children and parents and brothers and sisters, wives and mothers 
who they didn't know the date of their deaths. Right. And and that was the buildup of the rabbinic questions was, what should we do for Kaddish? And of course, my father had his own minug, which was Rosh Hashanah and Pesach, one, one for his mother, one for his father. Um, I know a lot of guys who chose Yom Kippur. Yeah, right. Probably because they wanted a Lee on Yom Kippur. Yeah, well, we actually had <laughs> we had the worst foghorn, um, uh, unlearned fellow in a shul that I davened at when I was in Chicago, who claimed the Umud on <laughs> because once the shul got so small, he said, "It's my yard site." And I'm going to daven chakras, and everybody did whatever they could to uh, mull around the halls when he davened. And it was a Rachmanis because he had lost his family, and he was the Baltzvil. He couldn't carry a tune. It was, it was, and there was nothing you could say to this person because he he brought up the righteous indignation. But, but I think that, you know that that sort of funny story. And my father, of course, at the end of his life, davened with me in that shul. And he would sort of like, you know, you know, put his uh, slap his head to his forehead and say, the guy doesn't understand. This is just a day to say Kaddish. This is not a true yurt site. Right. And especially. <laughs> right. But but the point well, is and I'm trying to get to is that now that so many of the survivors and children don't have that need. So Asar Batavis, hmm, well, it was the first big terrible day that we lost our independence should be thinking about the Shoah. And it's interesting, in one of uh, Rav Gorin's later chuvas from Shlomo Gorin, uh, he was asked, well, now that everybody, there aren't that many people, should we still keep it or not? And he talks about the idea of, well, it's still important as a country uh, for people to say it. It's still important for someone, he says, who is saying, could say Kaddish because he doesn't have parents who died later to say it on this day. Someone in the show should be saying it. Gorin is, is obviously saying we don't want it to disappear. But I think, uh, Rabbi, uh, that I think even the Warsaw Ghetto uh, commemoration, the liberation of Auschwitz, once that fades from memories of anyone who was actually there or knew about it, it becomes much harder to sustain. Because as you say, then it becomes zeroing in on detail that doesn't seem to be as important anymore as we're almost 90 years away from the ascension of Hitler to the power in Germany, it becomes an exercise for, in many people's minds in details that cloud. After the Holocaust, we all said never again. The world said never again. The point is, though, there were th- there are at least three definitions to never again. Uh, one definition of never again is what I think hardcore uh, uh, Jews believe, when I say hardcore, I mean thoughtful Jews, engaged Jews, never again means never again allow the crime of Jewish powerlessness to be repeated. In other words, Jews need to be in control of their own destiny, and uh, and we can't allow ourselves to be, to live at the whim of others, which is, the, you know, the, the state of Israel certainly is, is an expression of that, is, is the singular expression of that. The other idea of never again is never again tolerate bigotry, right? That's the general American uh, idea, you know, no, no more bigotry. We can't tolerate any form of racism because look what it could lead to. We never stand by, never again are we quiet. However, there's a third definition, which you saw really played out the last couple of months in, in Europe, which is never again means never again war. In other words, the Europeans couldn't talk about race because they were all guilty of something. So they just talked about war in general, which is the German reluctance to send, you know, the leopard tanks to Ukraine. 
is just never again war. War is always bad. In other words, if you ask Americans in polling, if two people are at war, what does that mean? Americans generally say, well, tell me who's right and who's wrong. Europeans say if there's a war, it means both sides are wrong, uh, which is certainly very far removed from the at least what used to be the American sensibility on this issue. And they just want no war, which is, you know, some kind of childlike pipe dream. But um, but it's Espe- especially since I think you've you, you've said something uh, historically profound that that type of reaction would issue from someone who had a sense of guilt, especially for their appeasement and all the things they allowed war to occur. So even though in its you know there was a messy denouement and the war sort of ended, but they didn't want to turn the uh, the laser inward. Right. And look at themselves and how they were culpable, not just in anti-Semitism, but as I said, appeasements of Germany right. and not getting into it earlier. And, and and it's sort of a way to say we're all making peace and therefore um, uh, there should never be war again without realizing. And I think, uh, as you say, as we're coming to the anniversary, the first anniversary of Putin's invasion of Ukraine, uh that that's that is a mindset that is dangerous because <laughs> it's possible mistakes on both sides led to this i mean i'm all in favor of war when it's you know a just war in the language of the catholics and there are a lot of good just wars world war 2 was a just war against germany that was a just war against the germans and the japanese yes oh you know, it's i'd much rather live in a world where good people have power than bad people have power but in europe they don't know who's they know who's bad and then it means looking in the mirror are talking about how russia is ready for a new offensive and uh things might get very very violent and terrible uh in the next couple of months because russia is not happy putin is not happy with the sort of public humiliation that has occurred over the last couple of months, and everybody is is flying the Ukrainian flag, but look how look how they're able to take back stuff. So, um, uh, but I mean, you know, I want to stay away really from Ukraine because I think that's a whole different program. Um, let's deal in in, in 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 small part at least with um, some things that are happening here in the U.S. Uh, when I opened Haaretz today. I saw a sort of a review interview with Mike Pompeo, and uh, he's written a book called Never Give an Inch, uh, where although it's very it's somewhat flattering to Trump, he he makes the case that had it not been for Trump's personality and the negativity in the press uh, and the the idiocy he feels of people in, in Sweden, uh, Trump and the people who were involved in getting the Abraham Accords past would have been a very, very heady consideration, probably should deserve things. But there's a a lot of in that book, based on the interview that I I read, many, many points of connection between Pompeo and Eretz Yisrael and the state of Israel and the people he worked with. Uh, I I thought it was very interesting when he talked about Yossi Cohen, who was the the head of uh, internal security or the Shin Bet, and he talked about how they were able to bond together with a number of successful espionage type of operations in terms of eviscerating uh, uh, Iran, Iran's plans. And they were always working together in tandem. And I, I thought it was very interesting. One one thing that he said was that my evangelical beliefs in many ways aligned with Yossi's uh, Orthodox Jewish beliefs. 
And because we read, we had that single-mindedness and belief in a higher power, we were able to work in sort of a real politic cloak and, and slash cloak and dagger way. Pompeo in, in those passages gives voice to a, a phenomenon that is not sufficiently appreciated, which the deep roots of Christian Zionism in America are much deeper than people realize. They go back a long time. People think it started in the 80s with Jerry Falwell or whatever. It goes back before Theodore Herzl. I mean, the uh, the Puritans who came to America revered the Old Testament in a way that many Christians did not. Uh, they revered the story of the of the Jewish people. They use it as an inspiring model for their own journey from Europe to America to find freedom. They align that with the Jewish story of leaving Egypt. And um, and and there were there was there was a movement of Christian Zionism in the, in the 19th century. I mean, it goes back a long time. And uh, listen, you, you know, as, as God said to Abraham, "Those who bless you will be blessed." And as believing Jews, there's no question that we should ascribe America's greatness and prosperity to the fact that America, in general, with some glaring exceptions was remarkably welcoming of Jews as individuals and remarkably supportive of the state of Israel and remains so, despite the left, despite, you know, the squad, and despite, you know, the stuff that happens. America is still the single most, the single most pro-Israel country in the, way, in the, in the world. And, and, and Pompeo, I think, has embodied uh, that spirit in a, more, in a modern way. I have to tell you, you know, the book is called Never Give an Inch. By the way, in Canada, it's called Never Give a Centimeter, but it's okay. (laughs) But I do see he's given up some inches and centimeters on his waistline because he clearly, (laughs) no, he clearly has gotten a personal trainer because on the dust jacket, he looks very svelte. And and to me, that says someone's whispering in his ear and saying, hey, you don't want to seem overweight. Uh, That's not going to win you the election. Um, do you see he, do you see I, him? I'm deeply offended by your rate, your, your, your bigotry against the obese, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, we've been talking on this program about DeSantis as, uh, uh, as the person who could perhaps overturn the Trump, um, movement. Now I'm, I'm now intrigued by the possibility of Pompeo. Is this, is there any chance you think that the Republicans turn to him and he's someone who has enough credibility as a person who worked for Trump to get siphon those Trump votes, but also to be seen. Well, he was in Congress. He went to Harvard. Uh, right. He, no, listen, he, was, he was the head of. Let me just tell people who don't know, like you, that right. he was. You do know, but others don't. That he was not uh, the head of the CIA. He was right. Secretary of State. I mean, it, it's a pretty packed resume, and it sounds like you know a case could be made that hey, this is the perfect moderate. Republican and that is and the Jewish power could get behind him. Okay, here's the question. The Republican primaries, the, the general thinking is, and again, I'm not saying it's correct. The general thinking is that if Trump runs again, as seems likely, as he said he will, um, then no one can beat him in the primaries. And what people also say is that there's nobody that Trump can beat in a general election. That means he can't lose the primaries and he can't win a general election. And there is strong evidence to support that argument. So the question is, if you believe the Republican Party should win the next election and you want them to win, that means you do not want Trump as your nominee. 
so one of the ways to guarantee that he is the nominee is to have a very divided field of opponents like we saw in 2016 where so many people ran against him that the anti-Trump vote or the non-Trump vote was divided and allowed Trump to, to win. So right now you have people like Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, Nikki Haley in part of the conversation in addition to the governor of Florida who you mentioned. The odds of somebody dethroning Trump as the presumptive nominee of the Republican Party is increased enormously if the field is winnowed down. So I don't know who that should be. I personally lean to a guy like DeSantis just because of his national profile. It's a good job he's, he's done in Florida. Uh, and, and he's good for the Jews, no question. So I, I, I think that Republicans who are serious about really trying to win the next election and therefore not having Trump as the nominee need to somehow coalesce, whether it's around the governor of Florida, whether it's around Mike Pompeo or Nikki Haley. I don't know. One thing clearly is from the book, Mike Pompeo went after Nikki Haley in the book because, you know, he sees her as a competitor for the non-Trump primary votes. So I I didn't read the book. But what I saw, the quote that I saw today in Haaretz was that he said she said a lot of good things, but didn't do much. Right. Uh, and, you know, which might actually, again, you, know, you could probably turn it on on Pompeo, too, in some ways. Uh, what I'm worried about, about Pompeo being pushed into prominence is that he's too closely connected. Right. That's what I was going to say. He's certainly tarnished by his close association, although he did distinguish himself in in many ways. So it's a tough call. You know, if if you want the Republican Party to be normalized, right, you want them to, again, take the role that they've taken since, you know, Ronald Reagan. You need to have a nominee who can expand the base and to uh, appeal to the suburban voters, appeal to people who aren't excited to hear the wild rhetoric of, you know, the anti-left rhetoric coming from Trump. Listen, Trump got elected because of the excesses of the left as a way to thumb your nose at, you know, at the, at the left, at the left. Trump did some great things as president that are uh, underappreciated. And I'm not just talking about what he's done for Israel. I'm talking about uh, deregulation and other things. But, um, but the, uh, but again, Trump is unelectable. I mean, he's lost three times in a row. What I mean by that is, he lost in 2020. Uh, before that, he lost the midterms during his term, and you know, and and you could, and he lost the, the midterms. Now his candidates lost. Those who had a strong pro-Trump, you know, election was stolen mantra. Those are the guys that lost. You look at the same states, the same districts where normal Republicans did well. Trump Republicans failed miserably, and uh, and. and I- Going back to Pompeo just for a second, he's on record for telling Trump to stop the fight. Yeah. He, so he, in many ways, although he's sort of connected to Trump in terms of some foreign uh, foreign affairs successes and a State Department wins, he can also show that he he was critical and that he uh, he 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 felt the election uh, Trump shouldn't contested. He was uh, he was not anywhere a pro January sixth person. So in, in a way, you can see people whispering in his ear, telling him that he has a pathway. 
I, 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 I sort of agree with you. I don't see him uh, asserting himself in such a major way just because he doesn't have a big enough megaphone. Yeah, Haaretz is going gonna, is gonna to put a number of stories about him because he'll make trips to Israel and he's going to say so many positive things about Israel. But you're right, he probably doesn't have enough name recognition and appeal to be able to snag this. That's what DeSantis is clearly the highest profile competitor to Trump in the Republican Party. And he has played things correctly. He hasn't criticized Trump, but nor has he, you know, gone out of his way to be on on Trump's (laughs) side. He's played it very smart. So that might that might be. And again, I, I know I'm obsessing about Pompeo, but maybe that's where he's really at. He's a smart guy. If you run the CIA, you don't go you don't try to create situations that are just pipe dreams. Maybe by giving himself some national prominence, he okay, I'm not going to be president, but I'll get something in a new Republican uh, administration, and I can still be a player on the world stage uh, in some way. I, I, I think that's probably, a, you know, and I can, and losing weight in the, <laughs> for that reason, probably isn't such a bad idea either. I mean, as, as boats fun to be able to hold forth and, and have an audience listening to you. And I think that's Without part of you, I would have no self-esteem or any, any real role to play in, in, in the world. Well, you know, I, you who saved me from the depths of, of, of my meaningless existence. Well, I, w- I will say that your global media presence has been wonderfully increased by your old buddy from <laughs> 400 Mount Wilson Lane. Yes, <laughs> as, as much as you were a, 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 a known commodity, we've got you downloaded throughout. I have the- skyrocketed to viral fame. Yes, throughout the planet. Everybody knows about Emeritus Rex. And on that incredible self-serving note, I guess we bid you adieu. Take care, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 